Well, if you ha- have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Psalm 54. Uh, our text is actually going to be in uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 23, but for our scripture reading, I want to read Psalm 54. And this is a psalm that uh, David wrote in the midst of going through the trials of chapter 23 that we're going to look at as he's on the run in the wilderness of uh, Judea. Here's what this psalm says. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Here's what David wrote. O God, save me by Your name and vindicate me by Your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So let's now turn to First Samuel and see what sort of events precipitated uh, such a psalm. And what I want us to consider this morning and what I want to charge you with is to listen to the God who speaks. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if our God had not spoken and does not speak through His Word. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, we have accounts of the prophets and the psalmists actually taunting those who worship idols at the silliness of the reality of who their gods are. Let me give you a couple examples. In Psalm 135, you don't need to turn to these, just listen. Psalm 135, verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Look at the idols of the nations. They're made by people's hands. Habakkuk 2.18 What prophet is an idol 
when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. Isaiah 46, we have the gods of Bel and Nebo in Babylon. Oh, their greatest gods. Here's what God says through Isaiah, verse 5, To whom will you liken me and make me an equal and compare me that we may be alike? What are you going to find for a comparison among all the gods with me is the taunt. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trial. You can cry to Bell and Nebo all day long and you'll get no answer. And here's the juxtaposition. Verse 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you sinners. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. Declaring, He speaks the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling the bird of prey from the east, the smallest things that you don't even think are big deals. The tiny little bird, God speaks to it. God calls it. And the man of my counsel from a far country and the prophet of God comes from Him. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I'll do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I'll put salvation in not in Zion, for Israel is my glory. The privilege of having a God who can speak. And He speaks in countless ways. This could be a sermon in and of itself. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Everywhere you look, God is screaming out. Whether it's through creation, whether it's through His prophets, 
Or as we read in Hebrews 1, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, who He's put as heir over all things. The privilege, that's what I want, to, want us to feel this Sunday. The privilege to know God's words. We know zero about God or even about us unless God has spoken. Unless God has revealed to us His words. What value can you put on John chapter 17. The prayer of Jesus for His apostles and for us. What if you can actually hear the Son of God's prayer for you? You can. It's written down. It's preserved. The biggest blessing beyond what we can imagine. Within that prayer, He says, Father, sanctify them in Your truth. That means make them holy. Mature them up in Your truth. Your Word is truth. Through His words, God changes us from one degree of glory to another. What if we had a God who did not speak. Well, as we're going to see in this text, we're going to see one man who has the privilege of hearing from God, David, and one man whom God quit speaking to in Saul. So let's look at this text. Remember the context two weeks ago? Uh, we went through 1 Samuel chapter 22 where Saul, through the Edomite Doeg, slaughtered the priests of Israel. And there was one who escaped, Abathar. And you see the king of Israel attacking Israel's priesthood. The one who's supposed to be protecting Israel, attacking Israel. You couldn't have more opposite picture between David and Saul. You have Saul over here who has his most faithful companion, Doug the killer Edomite, is Saul's companion. And then as we're going to see in this text, you have David with Saul's own son, Jonathan, who actually hears from God. Just so you can get your grips on this passage and the different places they're in. David is on the run, heading further south in the land of Judea. Uh, if you look at this map here, uh, it would be up off the top of the screen, above Bethlehem would be Jerusalem uh, up there. But in chapter 23, this chapter begins in Cala, up in the top center there. And we're going to see David go and protect the Israelites there. But then he's going to head south down towards Hebron and Ziph 
in, in Maon, and then he's going to end up over in Engedi by the Dead Sea. And let me show you what the landscape looks like as he's on the run. This is what the Judean wilderness looks like. This is where him and his 600 soldiers, last chapter it was 400, now he's gained 200 more soldiers. They're on the run in areas that look like this. I think there's a couple pictures here. There's caves and stuff where they can hide in. But this is what you should picture as we read and try to consider what it would be like being David on the run from Saul. So look at verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the, fleshing, the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go attack these Philistines? So the farmers here are going to understand this. Can you imagine putting all the work into your crops? And now finally, you're harvesting your crops, but the Philistines roll in and they're just stealing all your grain and all your harvest. This is what is happening in Kayla. Saul doesn't seem too concerned with fighting them off right now, but David, the one who is not even officially king yet, although he's been anointed by God, it's a sure thing he will be king. Ask God, shall I go attack these Philistines? Now let's just consider for a second. If you're on the run for your life, and Saul has already made so many attempts to kill you. David has 600 men. Saul has gathered 3,000 as he's chasing him. How many of you are going to be too concerned about dealing with someone else's problems? I mean, this right the first time I read through this text this week, that's what I'm thinking. Really? David's concerned about protecting the people there? And I think there's a lesson to learn here. You know, the amazing thing about David is you never find him hopeless. And one of the reasons why you'll never find David hopeless is because he ultimately never self-destructs on himself. Because if I'm in David's shoes, I think I'm throwing the biggest pity party you can ever imagine. I mean, everywhere he turns, there's danger. But David is considering someone else. Practical lesson here. If you struggle with despair, with the circumstances of life, here David is an example of looking out and seeing other struggling people and actually being willing to risk and suffer more for the sake of others. So David asked the Lord, and the Lord said to David, what a privilege. The Lord says to David, go attack the Philistines and save Kayla. But David's men said to him, behold, 
We are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we shall go to Cala against the armies of the Philistines? See, they're thinking how I'd be thinking. Are you kidding me? Then David inquired of the Lord again, verse 4 says, and the Lord answered him, Arise and go down to Cala, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Cala and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Cala. When Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Cala, he had come down with an ephod in his hand, which is really the key point of this first section of of uh, chapter 23. This is a, in a chiastic formula. And the centerpiece is this ephod. Uh, what a chiasm means is uh, there's parallel stories that meet up. So they kind of go like this. And then the centerpiece is right here. It highlights the main point of the text. And then it'll go back all the way down, and you'll see parallels. But here we read this statement, when Abathar the son of Ahimelech had fled to David in Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told, Dave, told Saul that David had come to Calah. So Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So the Lord gives victory to David. They go in and they save this town. But word comes. Two things come. Good news and bad news. Abathar comes with an ephod. Now we don't know a ton about it other than the priests wore the ephod. There was uh, uh, Urim and thumbing inside the ephod and somehow even in a greater way than casting lots more than just a yes or no answer God would mediate through the priests of Israel for the people of Israel so the picture is God's word is with David there is a priest of God with David willing to give him information and right after that bad news comes Saul is coming and he's right on their tail. Now it's worth noting, look at Saul's conclusion in verse 7. Halfway through the verse, Saul said, God has given him into my hand for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Saul's saying, what a stupid move. I'm going after David. You know, no smart military commander on the run is going to enter a city that has high walls and a gate and go inside it when I can just come to the door and slaughter him. Saul is thinking, surely God is giving David into my hand. Isn't that what he says? God has given him into my hand for he shut himself in. I think there's something to learn here. Saul is looking at these circumstances that look too big, too good to be true. And what does he say? Look at God's will. He actually does want me to kill David. 
David is actually a rebel. And so I, I, I just think a side note thing to learn here is, while we want to hear from God, be careful about interpreting what God is saying based on circumstances in your life because you could be fooled like Saul was fooled. God speaks most clearly, obviously, through His Word, through His people speaking God's Word, through a preacher preaching God's Word, through the Holy Spirit bringing to mind God's Word. And then we read this in verse 8, and Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Caleb to besiege David and his men. David knew Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Caleb to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Caleb surrender me into his hand? You would think not. Will Saul come down as your servants have has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, you see the blessing of God's Word? He will come down. And David said, will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. They started to head south. Then Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, and he gave up the expedition. So David asks, is he really coming? Yes, he's really coming. These people I just saved, their town and their lives, are they really going to turn me up? Yes, they're going to give you up. Now, why would they do that? Well, before you get too on your high horse against the people of Kayla, what has just happened in Nob? If you are opposing Saul at all, there was just slaughter there. So while it was not the honorable thing to do to turn David up, they knew that their blood, their own lives would be shed if they were going to protect David, unless they had some supernatural hope in God. Yahweh gives direction and special guidance through Abathar. The reason why this is so significant is because in 1 Samuel, all throughout this book, all the way from Eli and the priesthood in the beginning to where, to where we are right now, there's those who listen to God's Word and there's those who go on their own. There's those who go according to worldly wisdom. They're pragmatists. And there's those crazy people in the eyes of the world who trust in God, in His words. I'll just refresh your memory. Back in chapter 22, two weeks ago, in verse 5, we read this. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. David has the privilege of hearing 
military advice from God. What about Saul? Remember back in chapter 15, verse 23? Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. You see, God didn't pick Saul to be king because he had such great talent. God enabled Saul to be king by giving him his word. Well, when Saul quit listening to God's word, he could no longer protect his people as we see Saul is striking his own people. And then in chapter 16, verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. In chapter 18, verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. And then we're going to see in chapter 28, a few weeks from now, verse 6, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. I wonder how valuable you consider God's words. Not just God's words. Living words. Living and active. You read this book, there will be a sword that cuts into your soul all the way down to the intentions, the thoughts of your mind and the intentions of your heart. And it'll show you who you are. It'll leave you utterly destitute and without hope apart from God. But when a person is cut down to that point, now salvation is near. Because only the person who loses all hope in and of himself can look for a Savior. People can look for a Helper, but they don't want a Lord and a Messiah, and a Savior. The value of hearing from God. David has access to Yahweh, and Yahweh's guidance in this chapter is through this appointed priest. And isn't it amazing? How did this appointed priest get to David? Saul drove him there. As he slaughtered Abathar's family, Abathar takes off with the ephod. It even threw David's enemies. God is mediating for David on David's behalf. Exercise the privilege of receiving God's counsel. Don't have it be last resort. See, that's what we do. Well, all I can do now is pray. Oh, really? All you can do is talk to the Creator of the universe. You're left with that horrible option, huh? But isn't, if we're honest, this is how we think. We try everything on our own. We say things like, God's so busy, I don't want to bother Him. Well, let me tell you something. He doesn't have a problem with becoming too busy. I think He can handle it. The first place we need to go is to His Word. And when you think about it, this priest is obviously pointing towards a better priest. You might be thinking, well, yeah, David's king of Israel and God keeps giving him special words. Well, just think for a moment. 
what the writer of Hebrews says to us as Christians. Since then, we have a great high priest who's better than Abathar, by the way, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. By the way, if you find a high priest that can go through the stars and the galaxies, he's the best, I'd say. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. You know, we might think he's so great. Surely he's not going to help some sinner like me. But he sympathizes with our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You want to know what God's Word says to you this morning? If you're ever in a time of need, with confidence, draw near to my throne and find mercy and grace. Not maybe. You will. He's the perfect high priest. What kind of promise do we have exercised? The privilege. Here's how James says it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach and it'll be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now what does this mean? If you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives generously. But ask in faith. It's not saying, well, you got to be sure you're going to get the thing you ask for. What he's saying is this. Don't come to God as a double-minded saying, God's maybe good. He'll maybe help me. He maybe won't. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is saying, I may not, not get the exact thing I asked for, but here's what I know. I'm going to ask God, and He's going to answer me in some way, and I know He's good, even if I don't understand all of His ways. David doesn't understand all of His ways, but what does David know? So surely, God is good. God is good. He knows that when He comes to God, He's not coming to a God that might be for Him. He's coming to a God that is for Him. So, secondly, experience and export God's true encouragement. One of the ways God speaks to us is in encouraging words. Look at verse 14. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. That was that picture I showed you. That's from Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. <laughs> That's where he's living. There may be good places to hide there, but how would you like to get water there? Or get food there? Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Isn't it a beautiful picture being in the hand of God? And David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. Imagine what he's thinking. 
Who can you trust? I just saved this town over here and God just tells me they're ready to give me up to be killed. I mean, discouragement, you think, would be setting in. But look at what happens in verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Evidently, Saul can't get to him, but Jonathan can. And he said to him, imagine this. This might have been a low point in David's life. Here's the encouragement he gets. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Now this is amazing, because who's in line to be king politically? Jonathan. Saul my father knows this, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. They renewed a covenant they've already had. And David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. The encouragement to have Saul's own son come and encourage him. Do not fear. Do not fear. Look at, look at how he says this. He says in verse 16, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Here's the picture. David's in the wilderness on the run. God's sent messenger Jonathan, his friend comes and takes David's hand and he puts it in God's hand. That's where you put it. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Jonathan reassures his covenant. And then look at the end of verse 18. It says this, David remained at Horish and Jonathan went home. These are heavy words because they never see each other on earth again. The last time the two friends were ever together. I want you to think for a minute. What if Jonathan was David's hope? He was God's sent encourager. Jonathan isn't going to be much use of David in a very little time as Jonathan will be killed. But what does true encouragement look like? What does it look like to get true encouragement? Isn't it when an encourager comes and puts our hand in the hand of God and says, it'll be okay? Now, I know this isn't very popular. What's much more popular is saying, oh, don't come quote Bible verses to me in the time of suffering. Don't come teach theology to me. Just weep with me. Just give me sympathy. Well, there is truth. There's a time to teach and, and to be wise. But at the end of the day, a friend coming and sympathizing with you will, is not ultimately what you need. That won't last. Your friend could be dead and he's never going to come back again to sympathize with you. But what if your friend does come and show sympathy, but while he's there, takes your hand and puts it in the hand of God? That is an amazing way. 
God speaks through His people. That's why I love biblical counseling. This is what the counselor does. The counselor doesn't find amazing hope in and of himself or herself, but rather they've been trained in taking people's hands and putting their hands in the hand of God Almighty. And Ralph Dale Davis says this, perhaps believers cannot help but seeing here in Jonathan's mission a shadow of a greater Jonathan. And then he tells the story of Andrew Bonner, a Scottish free preacher who preached from 1838 to 1892. In his diary from May 26, 1860, here's what he wrote. He said, I spent an hour in my old retreat in the wood of Dunsane the place which I used to call the wood of Ziff, where God has often strengthened my hands, my divine Jonathan meeting me there. He says, today I got to go to a place that's like the wilderness of Ziff, where my divine Jonathan meets me and strengthens me. Obviously, he's pointing to Christ. Jonathan Edwards on his deathbed longed for the same divine Jonathan as he asked, Now, where is Jesus of Nazareth? My true and never-failing friend. It was this friendship of the Lord that Paul cherished when others left him. You see, we do have a friend that won't die, that won't be killed again. And these promises we get are almost too much uh, to think about. Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me as Paul was being persecuted. But the Lord stood by my side. And He gave me strength. When there was no one in the church to come and be a friend, Paul says, I wasn't left alone. His divine Jonathan had come to him. Listen to Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Here's why. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. These are Jesus' words. I'll never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do for me? And then interestingly, that's where you get verse 7 right after this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider, Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. It's amazing. The only way you're going to know that Jesus is always with you is if you have people speaking to you the words of God. So, experience and export God's true encouragement. Recognize the divine Jonathans in your life and also be one to someone else. Let God speak His words through you in the Third and final point, exalting God's providential messengers. Look at verse 19. Then the Ziphites, now imagine, 
It's a good thing Jonathan came when he came because David might have been at the end of his rope considering what happens next. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakaliah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire, come down and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you've had compassion on me. <laughs> now, can you imagine? I, I sit here and I just go, you know, yes, God tells him where to go next, but it seems like he walks into a noose everywhere he goes. The city he just saved turned him up. The Ziphites, hey, Saul, we know right where he is. He's hiding in our mountains, in our land. Why don't you come get him? Saul says, oh, may the Lord bless you for what you've done for me. You know, Saul reminds me of these charlatan false teachers that we see all over TV. You know, send me a hundred bucks and oh, the Lord will bless you. Make me rich. Those of you who are sick and desperate and dying, by my prayer shawl, and then the Lord will bless you, make me rich. You know, this is the heart of an ungodly person who uses God as a means of their own wealth and blessing. And then he says in verse 22, so, so they come to Saul. I, I, I find this a, li a little funny here. They come and tell him all this information. And here's what Saul says. Go make yet more sure. No one see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. You see, he doesn't have God's words anymore. He just has people's words. And he's not real confident in the information he's getting anymore. And then verse 23 says, See therefore, take note of all the lurking places where he hides. Come back to me with sure information. Well, good luck with that. Then I'll go with you. And if he is in the land, you get, you get to see his braggadociousness here. If he is in the land, I'll search him out among all the thousands of Jude, Judah. I'll get him. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Moan in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Moan. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Moan. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. Saul was hurrying to, I mean, David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry, come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of the Engedi. 
along the Dead Sea. So here you have the picture. Saul's men closing in on David. They're on each side of a mountain. Evidently, Saul split his troops in half. And he says, now we got them. We're going to pinch in on them. But wait a minute. A messenger shows up. Hurry, hurry, Philistines are destroying the land. They've come to destroy us. And once again, God is using the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, to save Israel's king. You just see the amazing providential work of God through any type of messenger, even your enemies. God might be speaking to you through your boss that is such a jerk and working His will in your life. The thing we have to take from this is God is good and He is able to take care of His people however He wish. If it's in death, death will not reign over God's children. We will be resurrected. If we die, yet shall we live just as Christ lived. I want to close with this. John 1.1 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you're going to describe Jesus Christ, you're going to describe Him as a Word, as a messenger, as the exact imprint of who God is. The only one who has seen God and known God for all eternity. And then in verse 11 of that same passage, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. See, there's a certain type of people that believe, and it's not just people who make a decision. I'm afraid there's a whole lot of people that have made a decision to believe that the person of Jesus Christ is a real person and died on the cross and raised again. But doesn't love that Christ. May know it's true. The devil knows that's true. But what marks off the children of God according to verse 11 of John 1? They're born of God. Not born by the will of man. They're born by God. So that's my question for you this morning. Have you been supernaturally changed in such a way where this Christ that used to seem so boring and so irrelevant to your life, the Holy Spirit now has actually helped you see that there is nothing more valuable than this one who came to go to the cross. Jesus came. He lived the perfect life. He never sinned. Ever sinned. Thought, word, or deed. Never sinned. And then He willingly went to the cross to bear the hell, the wrath of God, the punishment we deserve on your behalf. And the only people that get their sins forgiven 
are those who are so broken that they say, my only hope is in someone that can stand as a substitute in my place. If you know you're a sinner here today, you know there is no hope for you. You know that the gods of this world will not deliver. And you know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Beg God to give you the type of faith that clings to Him. Beg God to give you new life where you're actually recreated and Christ becomes the thing you love. Only a miracle can do that. Only God supernaturally resurrecting a spiritually dead person can make a person realize that Jesus is Lord. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What it means is that He has all ownership over your life. He's the King of the universe. He's the one who created you. He is God. And if you confess Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is, I've been bought with the price. He owns you doubly because He created you and then He died for you. And you say, whatever you have for me, you're my Lord. You're my hope. I'm going to quit driving for my own kingdom like Saul is doing. And I'm going to serve that king because his kingdom has no end. If that's you, cling to Christ by faith. Repent of your sins. Father, oh, how kind you are to speak to us the best news in the universe that you have made a way for this broken world to be healed. That's why we pray that your kingdom come, your will be done. God, will you come soon? Will you send your king? We know he's coming. Will you destroy the kingdom of the devil? Lord, we know that we can't reign the kingdom in but the kingdom will come when Jesus Christ comes again. Lord, I pray there'd be no one here that lives their lives in rebellion to that king because you're going to come and save your own and destroy those who have rejected grace. Lord, thank you for speaking to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.